pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. This is the one about physical exam, where we're joined by Matt Nelson, who says that an ultrasound test is meaningless. Well, my name is Katie. I'm a PGY1 emergency medicine resident. We had a patient in the emergency room. She was about in her mid-40s, obese, presenting with epigastric tenderness without really many other symptoms that had been going on since that morning. And I thought this was going to be pretty straightforward. I did the abdominal exam. There was no rebound, no guarding, but she was having some right upper quadrant tenderness and a definite positive Murphy sign. I went out and I presented this to my attending. I said, I think the patient has cholelithiasis. And I was headed down that path that the patient had gallstones, maybe even cholecystitis. Despite the fact that she wasn't febrile, I thought this was a definite positive Murphy sign. The attending then went and examined the patient and said, this is not a Murphy sign. Um, I, I think something else is going on. So I was a little bit confused about that. In the end, the patient did not have cholelithiasis or cholecystitis, but I was positive that she had a positive Murphy sign. So Dr. Katie Labot comes out of that with a perfect Murphy's exam and an attending who doesn't think so, and it turns out not to be gallbladder disease. Today we have Matt Nelson joining us uh, for the podcast. Matt, where did this case go wrong? Well, it's hard to know, right? I don't know if she is doing the test wrong or if my interpretation of what a positive Murphy's is the same as her interpretation. So you're talking about vocabulary. You're saying that when she says Murphy sign, it may mean something different. Now your expertise is ultrasound and ultrasonic Murphy signs is one of the things the radiologists actually write in their report all the time. Absolutely. And I think most of the time, completely useless terminology. Wait, 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 wait. Matt Nelson, (laughs) Herald of Ultrasound, said an ultrasound finding was useless. That's right. You got that on tape, right? Because I can make pretty much anyone say, ow, holding the probe into their right upper quadrant. So for me, I have found the vocabulary problem uh, most prevalent when, when a resident says the word cervical motion tenderness. Very often, when a pelvic exam is performed, I will simply ask, was there cervical motion tenderness? And I get a no. But Without prior knowledge about what they think a cervical motion tenderness is, that isn't helpful. I have had residents who believe that a cervical motion tenderness means that the patient actually has to jump off the bed in pain to make it a positive chandelier sign. And I have to explain what CMT is before I can ask that question. And if they're not like reaching for the light at the top of the room, it doesn't count? It doesn't count. That's a new one to me. Uh, I... I definitely think that we have places where we might misunderstand even a Murphy's. I'm pretty sure Murphy didn't care about this respiratory arrest stuff. Like, as far as I know, it was like the 1900s early, and he would stand up at the patient's head and reach down and curl his fingers over the ribs and say, take a breath. And if it hurt, it was a positive Murphy's. And I think that uh, he said it was positive, especially if you couldn't do the same thing on the left. And now we have this, well, the breath stopped business, which I think is kind of weird. I have had this with guarding. I thought guarding was a pretty standardized thing, but I have encountered several people who came out of the room saying the patient has no guarding, and I said, they they sure do, come show me what you mean. 
And what they thought was that if the patient doesn't actually swat your hand away or curl up to block you, guarding the tender area as if they're doing a Heisman with a football, uh, then, then it's not guarding. So the patient's lying flat on the bed and the abdominal muscles are locked like a, a wall and I can't get in and the resident's like, there's no guarding. Now there are alternatives to Katie Labatt's problem. Exams change. Medical students hate us for it, but sometimes there wasn't pain when the medical student pushed, and there is pain when I push, or the other way around. So exams change. I think that that's the natural progression of disease, right? That's why we put someone in observation for serial abdominal exams, because we know an exam can change, right? Sometimes that's what it's supposed to do to lead you to a diagnosis. person comes in with epigastric or periumbilical pain, on my first exam, and now on a repeat exam, it is in the right lower quadrant. I'm thinking completely different pathology. So it's not something we should teach people to avoid, but it's something that we can very honestly say, this changes in the emergency department, and it actually changes my pre and post-test probability that it has changed in the emergency department. Sure, and it's not always the classic, and it was diffuse, and now it's right lower quadrant. Sometimes it just goes away or comes back. It doesn't fit the book exactly. One of us was talking earlier and mentioned that one of the confusions for the junior residents uh, is signs and symptoms. Yeah, so I mean, I think this stems from the vocabulary of the nomenclature. I think with the junior resident, often they come out of a room and they will say that the patient has abdominal pain on exam. And I look at them a little perplexed because abdominal pain isn't elicited on exam, you're trying to elicit abdominal tenderness, right? So they're coming out and they're giving us the patient's symptoms, which you could get just by talking to the patient. So it's really a misinterpretation of the data, a misinterpretation of what the physical exam is. So, I hear a lot that are, that are like this, except it's the opposite. I hear that the patient on exam has no pain. And I go, well, the chief complaint is abdominal pain. So I'm pretty sure they have abdominal pain. You mean you couldn't elicit tenderness? That is one thing, and there is one solution to all of this, that any time your exam differs from a resident, the right move is to get up and walk into the room. Remember, we still call this stuff bedside teaching, but you need to go in and watch the resident do the exam, do the exam with them, and honestly, there are great techniques for a lot of the exams that we do that we should be passing on to our learners. What do you do? So for me, abdominal exams are uh, the classic. So putting the patient in the right position with the knees up, uh, getting the pants so that they're not interfering with the exam. And I am the king of distraction, not just in my personal life, but with patients as well. I find that talking about their life and all that and getting them not thinking about the fact that I am pushing on their belly gives a completely different exam than otherwise. I can't agree more. I think especially in peds, I often take my stethoscope and listen to the abdomen so that they think I'm just listening for bowel uh, sounds, but I'm actually doing the abdominal exam with my stethoscope. So are there any times that you don't get up off your chair and go in to see the patient immediately after one of these differences in exam? Absolutely. I have a fresh cup of coffee and it's going to get cold. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it's not going to change uh, what I really do. It's not important enough for me to go in the room. So the, the times when the teaching can be a little different and doesn't have to be an in-the-room, let's-do-this-together thing is when the exam that they're not sure about 
when a medical student asks you if it's a three out of six systolic ejection murmur or a five out of six systolic ejection murmur, in no way is that going to change my clinical reasoning. And therefore, what I need to teach is not how to do the exam better or buy a better stethoscope so I could even hear a three out of six systolic ejection murmur. What I need to teach is the clinical reasoning around how good that clinical finding is. So you're talking about, does it change my pretest probability of anything? Uh, and is it worth learning it? And so, yeah, if you tell me, uh, hey, I need to, I'm, I'm not sure about the exact way to do a Brzezinski's. Or can you show me how to do a Homans? I'm going to say no. You should save that neuron for something that matters. So does the physical exam even matter? Why are we so concerned about teaching it? I think that there are a bunch of reasons why learning a physical exam is important. One of them is when I was a new teaching attending and I didn't feel like I had the breadth of knowledge to stand up in front of my fellows uh, I could learn to do certain physical exam well, and they come up enough in the emergency department that I can declare myself and be an effective teacher by doing these things correctly and knowing the indications on when to do them. So now you're selecting certain exams that are really important, that we're going to do a billion times, that totally make a difference, that do change the course of the whole interaction. Great. So what are the exams that are important enough for us to teach? So I think... We talked about it a little earlier, but I think that abdominal exam is really important. Uh, I think that ultimately it can tell you to not do further testing, but you have to be confident that your abdominal exam is good. And you probably want to avoid writing really fancy names in the chart if you don't actually know how to do those tests properly. I think that a good rule of thumb is that if there's a name for a sign, you can pretty much avoid that. And throw it out the window, it's pretty much a useless test. I think that's actually holds up pretty well. We'll call it Nelson's Law, and having given it a name, we don't have to remember. <laughs> so the other thing I think is really important to learn from a physical exam point of view is a good neuro exam. I think I, I don't use the HINTS exam very often, but there are certain physical exam findings in, an, in a neurological evaluation uh, or a back evaluation that are essential, and you need to learn to do those well. And when you get into sort of a routine of doing them, uh, it becomes very practiced, and it actually makes your exam uh, and the repetition and sort of the, the regularity of it mirror your documentation. You always do it this way. You always record it this way. And the last thing you want to do is document wrong. You never want to up-document or document something you didn't do because you could really hurt people. Right, and I think that uh, another reason to get good at something and make sure that your terminology is right is when you're speaking to a consultant and they're going to want to know that what you're talking about is what they're talking about. And, and we're back to vocabulary. I need to know that my vocabulary is the same as my consultant. So this week's article is from the JAMA series on the Rational Clinical Examination. Uh, we think that this is a wonderful resource. It goes through many of the diagnoses that we make every day and looks at what tests, what physical exam, what historical pieces best predict who has the disease and how useful they are. So it really takes a lot of the things that we talk about and makes them evidence-based. I think it's absolutely worthwhile any young educator uh, looking at this series this particular article today, because of what we've been talking about, is Does This Patient Have Acute Cholecystitis by Robert Trowbridge.
pick? What's the article show? The article goes through a whole bunch of uh, characteristics. They talk about some limitations of their study, but essentially they assign likelihood ratios, uh, which are much better than sensitivity specificities for clinicians. And it turns out that Murphy's sign is amongst the best predictor with an LR of 2.8, which unfortunately is not a hang your hat on LR. If I think about LR numbers, uh, I think that if I'm completely on the fence, 50-50, if where the patient has the diagnosis, then I think of an LR as giving me a, a increased likelihood by, if I go up, 2, 5, and 10 gives me a plus 15%. So a likelihood ratio of 2-something uh, would make my 50% move up by about 15%. Now I'm at 65. Not Doesn't so help. Doesn't help that much. And negative 0 0.5, 0 0.2, 0 0.1 in the opposite direction. So an LR of 2.8 is certainly much more useful than a flip of a coin, but it actually doesn't move the pretest that much. It certainly might make me clinic clinically order an ultrasound. Right. At the end of the day, I don't care if the person has the Murphy's sign or doesn't have the Murphy's sign because in the setting of right upper quadrant pain, ultrasound is an excellent test. It, it is your gold standard. And in this article, it compares it to the gold standard, which is cholecystectomy. The sensitivity and specificities listed in 2003 are low to mid-90s and uh, mid-80s. I think with the equipment that we use today, it's probably mid-90s for both. And when I see a patient with right upper quadrant pain, it's ultrasound to the rescue. Because a negative study, I'm done, and a positive study, I'm done. So right upper quadrant pain is though you're triggered to look for the disease at all. So it is the only thing that even gets you thinking about this study. They actually mentioned that upper abdominal pain in general, epigastric pain, has about as good a catchment area as right upper quadrant pain. And they take from that the idea that, again, as Matt said, you might think of an ultrasound. So what's the take home here? Do we, do we get ultrasounds on everybody? Do we not even push in the right upper quadrant? Which, which side of this do we go to? Once you're going down this pathway, you're going to order the sano. Do you have enough to go down the pathway? So the article makes a point of saying no single finding in the history or the physical exam carried enough weight to independently predict acute coli. A constellation of findings might do that for you. Uh, and so Katie Labatt's um, expert attending may have noticed that despite the positive Murphys, if in fact they had that, uh, there wasn't enough there to push them down that path. So Gestalt. So Gestalt in this case has a positive likelihood ratio of 25 to 30, which beats the hell out of your two point something from before. So honestly, clinical Gestalt helps us more than everything else, but that does mean that the article doesn't help us that much. The article helps us to know exactly how much these exam findings don't help us that much. Again, the article is one of the examples in the Rational Clinic Exam in JAMA. Uh, check it out. So, Pick, what's our It's Not a Thing for the day? Today, the It's Not a Thing is the I hit my head and I think I blacked out for a second. Yes, uh, I, I can see what you mean. How do you know how long you blacked out for? Did you check your watch before and after and subtract? What if you walked into a grandfather clock and blacked out for a second? And then when you opened your eyes, uh, the clock was still on the same number. My thing is, half the time, the patient is saying that they're holding their head and they blacked out and they are still standing when they, quote, came to. That's not a thing. That, that's not a thing. I will add to that with a patient who says, 
Uh, I was walking along and uh, I tripped and fell. And you see that their face is covered in bluises and their nose is bleeding. And you look at their hands and their arms and there's nothing. They in no way put their hands up to protect themselves. Oh, absolutely. They were not, if they were, if they were not unconscious when they hit the ground, they were certainly not normal. And then you get the story of they'd been drinking quite a bit and or the many shopping bags they were carrying. I'll give them that sometimes. They couldn't get their hands up. The, oh, I, I tripped on the carpet, or I tripped on the dog, but I don't have a dog. Oh, yes. The, the, there was something, I swear. And I definitely didn't pass out. So, fine. Now we have the, uh, I blacked out for a second. No, you didn't. You did not uh, mildly hit your head and bruise your brain so hard that you lost consciousness, and then it resolved in a second. And then the people who have the obvious facial trauma that they could have uh, avoided had their brain been in the right place. So, Tom, what should we try today? I think we should go back in the room with the residents and do the physical exam with them. There is such great fodder for teaching around physical exam, and it's the only way to know that they're doing what we think they're doing. Uh, it's a direct observation. It's immediate feedback. Uh, it's, it's a shared mental model. How about you? What have you got for us? Look at the documentation. Find the thing the resident is writing. Ask them what it is they mean, and then go and do that first thing where you actually watch them perform pronator drift, and when they're walking the patient and writing, they're not drifting, you're going to have saved them a lot of lawyer time. So I had a wonderful teaching attending who consistently challenged people to tell him what the A was in Perla. Oh, and, and the double L, too. Yeah. So, so I have to be honest that it was only after this attending made it very clear that I don't test accommodation, or when I do, I do it extremely badly. I stop putting the A after Perla. Absolutely. I write P-E-R-L myself, and sometimes I will tell the resident this, and they will write P-E-R-L, and they'll keep writing it when one eye is a cataracted, totally blown pupil. Try these things today. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.